Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, human systems analyst Francesco Biondi talks about biometric devices and the information about us they gather and share with whom. Canada's food professor, Sylvain Charlebois, has some thoughts and plenty of facts about this week's huge increase in milk prices. And Prem Gill, CEO of Creative BC, lets us in on some of the dozens of movie and TV productions going on right now in our city. So let's get started. Here's a paragraph I read a couple of weeks ago. While waiting to board a plane on a recent trip out of town, an airline person asked me to momentarily take off my face mask to allow the facial recognition technology to check me in to expedite my boarding process. I was taken aback by the bluntness of the request. I did not want to take my mask off in such a crowded space, and I had not given permission to have my face scanned. While this encounter felt like an invasion of my privacy, it also got me thinking about other biometric recognition devices, which, for better or worse, are already integrated into our everyday lives. The author of that paragraph, after that airport experience, went home, sat down, and wrote a killer essay entitled, Smart Devices Can Now Read Your Mood and Mind, leading to a new set of concerns about technology and consent. The author of that essay is Dr. Francesco Biondi, an associate professor in human systems labs at the University of Windsor. He's with us now. Dr. Biondi, Francesco, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Hi, nice to be here. It's great to have you with us. That experience, how recent was that experience with facial recognition airport technology? Uh, It was pretty recent, I would say, in the last uh, couple of months. And uh, <laughs> it was quite startling. Um, I don't know, maybe I was naive in uh, you know, not expecting that, but definitely it was something that as soon as I you know, experienced it, it kind of you know, um, struck me and uh, made me thinking about uh, all, not only that technology, but all the other devices in our daily lives that are trying to do exactly that. Um, you know, use biometric signal to you know, check us into you know the, the um, in a, during an onboarding process, or uh, help us unlock our phones, or in other cases, you know, um, help um, them sort of understand our um, psychological state, our mind state, if you like. Right, and and this is uh, and you you work and you explain in the essay. My work explores the dynamics of how humans interact with machines. That's what human systems labs professors do in universities. So let's you you've uh, you've already identified some of the more commonly recognized devices, those fingerprint scanners and others. But give us a few more examples, Francesco, if you can, sir, about those devices with which we are so familiar we don't even think about them anymore. Well, there is now um, a growing need, um, as I'm sure uh, you know, for devices that allows um, uh, that enable, like, allow us to reduce the number of, you know, uh, traffic accidents. And over the last few years, the industry has been working toward developing they're called driver monitoring systems. Right. And yes. what they do, and what they do, uh, they use biometric recording to measure the level of fatigue or driver distraction 
and uh, sort of the ultimate goal is to reduce the number of accidents. Although these devices are now sort of not widely spread, but uh, around the world, their use is going to be uh, growing over the next few years. So that's right. one and clear example of, you know, these, in, in a way, like mind-reading devices, if you like. Exactly. And, and uh, so that, and that's why machine and machines read our minds. They don't actually read our minds, but they read our physical signals. And that allows them to form some kind of um, conclusion as to what our state of mind is at that precise moment. Correct? Absolutely. Uh, they read these physiological signals going from your heart rate, uh, the way you move your eyes, right. uh, how much is wet. And based on these signals, they draw conclusions based on how busy your mind is. And in a context like driving, for instance, if your mind is busy thinking about, you know, your grocery uh, shopping later on, uh, that, of course, is determined to be a safety risk for driving. Right. And thus, we have brand new vehicles for the last couple of years, now including the lane correction technology that tucks you back into where you're supposed to be going. And, and some drivers think that's a wonderful thing, Francesco. I find it a little scary. What's your take on overriding drivers, car systems that can actually override the driver while in motion? Um, I feel like the industry as a whole has been very uh, optimistic for the last 10 years. Um, maybe you know your listener, your um, listeners will remember uh, ten years ago, Google introduced like the cute little Google car. Yes. And at that point, we were promised they would have self-driving cars within you know five years. Uh, since then, then came Tesla, and of course they like pushed for self-driving technology even more. But the interesting thing is that over the over the last year. Uh, industry as a whole has recognized that the challenges um, for this technology to become, um, first of all, safe, and second of all, like widespread, they're much larger than they thought. Mm-hmm. So um, in answering your question, I think that um, there are definitely some you know, safety benefits associated with uh, advanced driving technology. But the way we are right now, while some of these technologies are definitely, you know, useful, um, semi-autonomous vehicles, the way we know them from, you know, driving Teslas or mm-hmm. watching, you know, uh, advertisements on TV, um, is not very safe at all. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about your experience at the airport and anyone else who goes in it into any kind of biometric interface scenario, whether it's, uh, uh, again, there are so many options. So what I wanted to know and what your research has as, as showing uh, about the information storage, who gets this information, Francesco, and for how long are they allowed to keep it and with whom are they allowed to share it? The short answer is we don't know. As uh, the public, as the users of these devices, we don't know. Um, I was surprised uh, going to an airport and um, uh, having, you know, being asked to have my face scan. It's a different scenario, of course, from when I use my biometric signal on my phone, because when I buy my phone and when I use uh, my phone, the operating system, my phone, you know, one way or or another, I can sort of access 
the privacy and security information for that device. But when I'm going to, um, in that case, to an airport, and right. you know, I wasn't expecting at all, I didn't sign anything, I didn't read anything, and it sort of caught me by surprise. And so these data, it's unclear who um, owned these data and with whom these data are shared. Is it the airline company that keeps these data? Is it the federal government? Um, it, it really, you know, it's really, it really is an open question. And that, that's something that maybe as a naive traveler sort of uh, struck me. And uh, uh, that's you know, the reason why it kind of got me uh, thinking about not only that specific place uh, scanning devices at the airport, but all the other devices in our daily life that uh, use biometric signal if we want them or not, and then what happened to the data, uh, we don't know. Well, I'm glad you wrote the piece, Francesco. You are not the only Canadian concerned about where this information is going and with whom it is being shared. And I'm glad you wrote the piece, and I'm recommending it to our our listeners again this morning. Thank you so much for taking a few moments to join us and talk about this. Uh, Would love the opportunity to do so again, because this is very much a fluid process. Thanks again. Nice talking to you. Have a good day. Sterling Fox with you on this Saturday morning. The song in the background is If I Had a Million Dollars by the Bare Naked Ladies. And you know, a million dollars just does, it sounds like a lot of money, but it just doesn't go as far as it used to. A house, any house in Vancouver is going to cost you more than a million dollars. So that's where we start this conversation. As we bring in our next guest, it's always a pleasure to welcome Sylvain Charlebois, Canada's food professor from Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. Back to the program. Sylvain, good morning. Good morning. Are you are you kidding? Like, all houses are over a million dollars in Vancouver? Yes, now? sir. Yes, sir. Oh, my uh, God. And, 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 and it's simply a function, Sylvain, of a supply and demand. The, there's the lowest number of listings on the market in decades, and the demand has never been higher. So you, you combine the fact that you have a really uh, unbelievably low available listings and people willing to pay just about anything, and you have prices that are just beyond stratospheric. They're ridiculous. And a lot of young people looking to get into the game are just, they're on the sidelines knowing they're going to be there for a while. But that's house prices, yeah. Sylvain. Let's talk about milk for crying out loud. A, a million dollars <laughs> may, may, may get you a crummy house in Vancouver, but a portion of that, it's going to take a larger portion of that to get some, to buy milk for the family. Global News in Toronto sent reporters across the country out to literally go to a store and buy a four liter jug or bag of milk this week. We don't have bags in BC, we do jugs. So in Ontario, the price of that four liter container of milk was up Uh, 14, almost 15%. In Halifax, where you are, the same four liter jug up eight and a half percent. In Alberta and here in BC, the same price up by 15.9%. This is the dairy cartel, frankly, from the point of view of many Canadians, at its worst, Sylvain. Tell us more about the rationale behind this nationwide price increase. 
Yeah. So, uh, so if I had a million dollars, I certainly would buy milk quotas to produce my own milk now. <laughs> no kidding. The, the average farm in Canada, the average dairy farm actually will own uh, almost $3 million worth of quotas. Uh, and that's just quotas. It doesn't include a barn, cows, and everything else. Uh, so the, the average worth, the, the net worth of a, of a dairy farm in Canada is over $6 million now. Mm-hmm. So these people aren't poor. Now, every year, the Cane Dairy Commission will actually look at how much it costs to produce milk, and they will actually recommend an increase. Uh, this year, uh, the recommendation uh, was 8.4%, a record, actually almost double the previous record. Okay. That is why, as of February 1st, we are seeing skyrocketing milk prices across the country, and this is just the beginning, uh, I have to say, because dairy products, processed products like yogurt and cheese, are likely going to be exposed to this increase as well. So these prices, as you say, they, they, they have an annual review. This year's review happened to be pretty much twice the last one. Who sets the review, and is it automatic? Is it, is it pretty, it's not in the Constitution, Sylvain, but it certainly sounds like it should be. Every year, dairy prices are going up. It's the law. It isn't quite that extreme, yep. but what's the story here? Well, the story essentially is, uh, is that when they actually calculate, when they look at averages, when they look at the cost to produce milk, they don't necessarily consider what goes on in processing or in retailing. Uh, And, of course, what would happen to consumers? What would they do if they actually see that milk products uh, or milk or dairy products are more expensive? They don't really look. Regardless, and farmers will make their money. This is really the big problem because as they continue to increase prices, uh, we're going to see more dairy farms in Canada disappear. And so right now we have about 10,000 dairy farms in Canada. Mm-hmm. We could lose half of our dairy farms in Canada by 2030 just because of this, this, this method, this, the, the way that they actually look at the market is really just about producing milk, making sure that we protect farmers, but it doesn't really look at how it impacts families. And I suppose, and we've noticed uh, both the conservatives and the liberals, all the major parties, the political parties uh, that are forces in this country are all solidly behind the dairy cartel, despite the fact that, as you've just said, there are only approximately 10,000 of them across the country, and yet they control massive political clout. That's that's an imbalance that a lot of Canadians are just wondering why on earth still exists. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and they have a lot of influence. Uh, I mean, politically, even in research, uh, my team just uh, was looking into this uh, this week, uh, looking at uh, research funding in uh, uh, at uh, Canadian universities. Sixty percent of all the funding in agriculture and agri-food in Canada comes from dairy in Canada. Sixty percent. Dairy alone. That. That company, that sector is a monster. It, mm. and, and most people don't realize it, but that group, the Dairy Farmers of Canada, are, su- are, are super, superbly influential. They actually yes. spend $150 million in marketing every year to tell us to drink more milk and eat more dairy products. 
while right now the sector is really uh, a mess, uh, we're actually allowing more products from abroad, and and the, and the industry at all the industry is not competitive right now. Industrial milk in Canada is three times more expensive than the industrial milk you find in the U.S. Three times more expensive. Our sector yeah. is just not competitive at all, and Canadians are paying for that. So, Sylvain, uh, we uh, perhaps are the victims of misinformation or misunderstanding here because we were under the impression that when the newest version of NAFTA was negotiated between Canada and the United States and Mexico, there were new provisions for an increased flow of American dairy products north of the border, which would assist Canadian consumers with better pricing uh, and, and, and wound, if you will, the Canadian industry by increasing competition. Did that ever happen? <laughs> Just to show you how politically powerful uh, the group is, they actually got almost $2 billion from the government, federal government, in, in compensation for more products coming into Canada from the U.S. and other places around the world. $2 billion. Okay? It's about $200,000 per farm in compensation wow. for uh, a loss in market share. Now, what we're finding out now is that barely any products have actually entered the cane market to actually make the marketplace more competitive to support families, Canadian families. And so my question to uh, Minister Bebo is that why are we giving $2 billion to dairy farms in compensation for more competitive products coming to, the, to Canada when there are no more products coming into Canada? Yeah, so uh, interesting uh, because now this forces consumers into a, into a, a different mindset. I just had an email from Murray who says, "Should I start putting almond milk on my cereal?" In other words, can consumers it create some kind of backlash because this represents an unacceptable degree of price increases? Can the consumers impact in any way? We're not going to stop buying milk, or are we? Well, you know the the, the increase. Uh, I mean, the question I a I've asked is the, to the Cane Dairy Commission is that well, okay, so eight point four percent. That's fine. Can we see the data? Where's the data coming from? How, how do you, how do you come up with eight point four percent? They have actually denied our request uh, to get primary data. The the data they actually they actually use to come up with eight point four percent. The system is not is not very transparent, and and frankly. Unlike beef and broccoli and everything else, because of our government-sanctioned quota system, milk is a public good in Canada. It's not. Yes. It's not like beef or. So that's that's the difference. If people are confused, why? Well, everything is going up. Why would dairy be an exception? Well, it is an exception. It's a different system. It's a very public system. It's protected by government. Uh, it's a privilege to be a dairy farmer in Canada, yes. and that that privilege needs to be recognized publicly. Yeah, and, and I suppose it's the it's the two billion in compensation for allowing more free market activity in a free market economy that would be a little uh, less than appetizing for many millions of Canadians, but don't you think? What the Canadian families right now are stuck paying more for dairy products at the grocery store while paying taxes to support, to subsidize the dairy industry. Hmm. That's really what's going on right now. And uh, I'm very glad that some reporters are actually doing the work right now to look into this system because it's really 
problematic. Uh, I, I, I think we need a quota system. We need to support supply management, but the system, the regime needs change. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been around pretty soft. Oh, and by the way, just for your own information before I let you go, our producer, Phil Figueredo, uh, points out in Halifax, where you are, last year, the average cost of a home, 331000 Sylvain. In Vancouver, the same home, $1.036 million. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to stay in Halifax for a while. <laughs> I would hang on to that postal code, too, if I were you. Thanks but, so but much Vancouver, for this, Sylvain. Good you, to I mean, speak Vancouver to you. Vancouver is a beautiful city, though. You know? It is indeed. Vancouver is a beautiful city. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much for this. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. It's time now to take a look at Hollywood North, and busy as ever, and partly because, well, there's more new sources to be busy about. A pleasure to welcome the CEO of Creative BC, Prem Gill, back to our program. Prem, good morning. Welcome back. It's been forever since we talked. It has, Sterling. Thanks for welcoming me back. Well, it's it's a pleasure to have you with us. And I guess one of the reasons we're actually busier now, Prem, than we were two years ago before the pandemic is because there's more to be busy about. Two years ago, we didn't have Amazon Plus, Disney Plus, Apple Plus, all these other streaming services, many of whom like to shoot up here. Yeah, well, I mean, those streaming services were in their early days, many of them. We all know Netflix has been around for many, many years now, and Amazon was um, catching on as well. But I think the difference is that they're they're just programming more, and they're commissioning more productions, and right. we're just seeing such a strong influx. And yeah, certainly, you know, British Columbia and Metro Vancouver remain a hotbed uh, for activity in the production sector. No question about it. And Prem, talk to us very briefly, if you can, about the speed at which our movie industry pivoted to be able to deal with the the restrictions of COVID and yet continue making movies. It was the one industry, I think, in this province that was the leader in that regard. Tell us about how that came about so quickly. Yeah, happy to. You know, shortly after when, you know, everybody obviously shut down in March 2020 and into April, and it was really unclear when we'd be going back to work and what would be happening with production. So the industry with the labor organizations, with Creative BC, with partners from WorkSafe BC, as well as producers and the major studios all came together to start to develop pandemic production guidelines. And jurisdictions, obviously, Hollywood and everyone was looking at this. But, you know, at that point, the pandemic was really different in jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So everybody, the the reason it worked is everybody came together, protocols were developed, and then each production developed their own further protocols. And, you know, productions were back by the summer of 2020 and then really picked up in the fall going into the winter of 2020. So there was a big downtime, but, you know, everybody came back and there's a lot of restrictions and, and ongoing challenges, but, you know, people keep pivoting and adapting. Interesting stuff. Let's, can we talk, Prem, about some of the specifics of some of the TV shows and movies and feature films and streaming services? For example, I live in New Westminster, and uh, mm-hmm. the other day I was over there, and the parking lot where I usually park to walk the dog was full of tents and big trucks, and there was another moving shoot. That happens a lot in Queen's Park, and I know The Good Doctor right. has shot a few times in Queen's Park and around New Westminster. They're back shooting right now, aren't they? 
Yeah, I mean, The Good Doctor's in season five. It's yeah. a show that has tremendous ratings that kind of flies into the radar, I think, in terms of, you know, awareness from like a pop culture perspective. But it's got tons of viewership and, you know, a really solid crew of people and local production company here that leads the um, the local production piece, Bright House, or sorry, <laughs> Bright Light Productions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a really, really season five. I mean, that's tremendous. Indeed, and The Flash is shooting season eight, for crying out loud. The, the Flash is in season eight. Other shows that are Warner Brothers, similar superhero shows, Superman and Lois is in season two. If you haven't seen it, that's something to check out. Lots of locally recognizable locations, especially into the Fraser Valley. Charmed is in season four. Kung Fu is in season two. Um, you know, Riverdale, season six. So we all remember that's right. when you know Archie and Jughead reappeared a few years ago. We weren't sure what to expect. Um, so that show's really matured as well, but yeah, it's, you know what, so many people, um, individuals that work in this industry make it all happen. So who is the point person, Prem, when a, when a movie production company, uh, once they get their budget together and, and, and their financing Mm -hmm. is in place, then the next step is to find out where best to get the best bang for that buck. And they go to New Zealand. If you're shooting Lord of the Rings or you, and many, many times it's much closer to jump on a plane and pop up to Vancouver when they contemplate shooting in Vancouver and begin Mm -hmm. the discovery, the, the whole investigation process, are you the person at creative bc that typically they would liaison with to find out more it's certainly the team here at creative bc so we have the film commission for british columbia is based out of creative bc we have a film commissioner and we have a team of eight people they are on touch points every single day certainly way more than i am Um, and they're helping people understand locations uh, policies in different municipalities, municipal film offices play a critical role in everything, regional film commissioners, of which there are eight, which are supported through Creative PC. It really is, you know, just as a movie production is, you know, requires literally dozens and dozens and hundreds of people in some cases, so does the work of what we do to help them land here, you know, safely, but also understanding, you know, the possibilities of what's achievable locally. And we track what's happening in studio spaces and what's available and crew availability. And again, working closely, it's a very uh, well-knitted together industry where there's so many touch points. It's literally not one person. Indeed. I'm looking, I've just looked down at some of the lists uh, on, uh, of, uh, of shows coming or shooting something called Reginald the Vampire is <laughs> shooting in Vancouver for season one. That already sounds intriguing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about major films. Uh, Jennifer Lopez mm-hmm. was said to have been in Vancouver the last few weeks making a new movie. Any other major features being shot that you're aware of this week? Yeah. Um, well, they had, there was also, yeah, I think her production wrapped just before the holidays. And there was obviously the Adam Project that Ryan Reynolds was here in the fall, and that will be coming out soon. Um, there's a production, there's a few features right now. One is called The Honor Society, and it features some of the cast from Stranger Things um, and Superbad. You know, we also, there's a lot of great independent Canadian productions. Marie Clements, who is a prolific Canadian um, independent filmmaker just shot Bones of Crows and they are wrapping up production right now. Um, really excited and, and, you know, interested in seeing where that lands. There's a mini series called Shogun, which every, if you remember, I don't know, people from the seventies and eighties might remember the book Shogun. Oh, sure. You bet. Mini series yeah. then as well. They are there. They've been in production. So, you know, there's, 
there's feature films, there's movies that are going straight to streaming services, there's right. TV series, there's local documentaries, and just so many interesting things happening. I mean, it's such a dynamic community, and really proud of our independent filmmakers here as well, who are, um, you know, in production. There's one called The Beehive that's currently in production. Um, it's an Indigenous-led supernatural thriller. The director's one uh, is a person named Alexander Laceres, um, you know, Keep an eye on names that I'm mentioning here because okay. um, I think you're going to start hearing a lot about these folks. Well, it's wonderful energy that the film community has been able to generate to the rest of the province. Certainly one of the first sectors of our economy to get back up on its feet following the lockdown and blaze a trail for a lot of the rest of us. And you're doing a great job, Prem. Thanks for taking a few moments with, this, uh, with us this weekend to give us a clue as to what's going on all around our town. Thanks, Sterling, and thanks for your interest. Take care. Oh, it's good to have you back with us. That's Prem Gill, the CEO of Creative BC. Just a, an inkling as to the film activity and movie activity going on around our city. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.